learn a new skill, if you want to learn how to do something, it'd probably be wise to find somebody who is an expert in that field. If you want to build a house or a building, it'd probably be a good thing to find a certified or experienced builder. If you want to cut somebody's hair, it might be good first to find a licensed barber or a beautician before you begin to do it. And uh, if you need to get your, if you want to know how to fix a vehicle, under no circumstances should you call your pastor, um, unless unless you need help changing your blinker fluid, or um, or rotating the hubcaps or something like that. Uh, you need to find somebody that knows what they're doing. I neither have the training nor the experience to show you the right way to do these things. And so really the key is pretty simple. I think we would all agree if you want to know how to do something right, find an expert that can show you ultimately how to do it. But it's that principle that makes chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, or chapter 11 of 2 Samuel so ironic. Because what we find in this chapter is we find an expert example on how to sin. The strange part is, ironic part is, the lesson is not given to us by somebody that I would think or consider to be a professional or expert sinner. Instead, what we find is it, normally you would think that maybe the lesson would come from an atheist, a pagan, or an idolater, but instead these lessons come from King David a man after God's own heart. He's the one who teaches us what it looks like to expertly sin. Now, we're very familiar with this passage. If you've been around church at all, or even if you haven't growing up, you've heard of the story of David and Bathsheba. And oftentimes when we go to such a familiar story, the difficulty is sometimes we miss really what the point of the text is. And I'm not going to assume that I always know exactly what the point of every text is. I certainly strive at it. But let me tell you what I believe that this text is about. This chapter teaches us that even though we may be believers in Jesus Christ, that we are saved by grace through faith alone, that our sins are forgiven past, present, and future, that we've been regenerated by being given a new heart, a new will, we have the spirit of a living God living inside of us. Even though we are being progressively sanctified, that we look more and more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, with all of that said, you and I still are susceptible to committing grievous sin against our God. Every one of us is susceptible to doing that very thing. And so David's own struggle with sin here teaches us truths about our own struggle with sin. Three things we learn from David in this passage about sin, and I want to share those with you this morning. First of all, we learn how easy it is to fall into sin. It's not a hard thing to do. It's actually quite easy, and we see this with David. We, we, we get a sense right when we begin to read verse 1 that, that something is not quite right. We read the words, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to war, and then the verse ends with, but David remained at Jerusalem. And so this was a normal time of year that kings would go to war spring. Why? Because people don't like cold weather. No, it's not just that. It's because there's not a whole lot of food. If you're going to travel hundreds of miles away to go and defeat some enemy, you need to make sure that there is food that's being produced on their land. There'll be enough food to be able to feed your own soldiers. So, so it's a good thing. Now, let me suggest this. Uh, some commentators really make a huge deal about whether it was right for David to be able to remain 
remain basically back in Jerusalem uh, and not be with his people. And they've got a good point. The point is one of the primary roles of David was to be the primary lead um, uh, soldier to be able to lead his people into battle. So there's certainly something to that. But we have to understand when we read all of David, he's not always in every single battle. So what we do understand is this, whether he should have been on the battlefield or not, we do know this, he probably would have not gotten into the trouble that he was in had he been doing the things that God had ultimately called him to do. And so what we know is, we, we, we think of the phrase, or at least I think of the phrase, idle hands lead to evil thoughts, and I think we see that played out here with David. In, in verse 2 we read, follow along with me if you will, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful, and David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself for her, from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived... And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now, if you are familiar with our series, not only in, in 2 Samuel, but even in 1 Samuel, this comes to a shock to you right now as you read about David. Because up to this point, he's really been portrayed as the ideal servant of God all the way across the board. He has been tempted time and time and time to, to sin in many different ways, but yet he's remained faithful, not perfect, but overall faithful to what God had ultimately called him to do. On more than one occasion, he had the opportunity to, king, to kill King Saul, who was constantly chasing him, trying to kill him, but he wouldn't raise a hand to God's anointed because God had expressly commanded him not to do so. There was another occasion when he had the opportunity to be able to break a covenant promise that he had made to Jonathan, and time had passed, 15 to 20 years had passed, circumstances were radically different, Jonathan to whom he had first made the promise was no longer around, but he was still faithful to do what he promised to do, why? Because the Torah, the law of God told him to do so. Uh, we find other examples as well as him not hoarding riches to himself as he began to defeat all these different enemies around Israel. Uh, they begin to accumulate all this gold and all of this silver, but he didn't keep it to himself, but, regular, but instead shared it with the people and consecrated it over to God for the use of God and his house. Why? Simply because the word of God commanded him to. What we find is a pattern for him. We find a pattern that he is exalting obedience over any momentary, selfish, sinful desire. This is the man that we find, but here we see him fall. And when he falls, he falls hard. Because it's not only the fact that he falls to the sin of, of adultery, which is bad enough, but this isn't something that he simply fell into. Would you agree? He didn't fall, trip, fall into bed with Bathsheba. This is something that he premeditated. It's something that he planned. He was up on his roof. He sees the woman. He begins to lust in his heart. He has to take the time to send messengers to go and to find out who she is. They find out who she is. She comes, they come back and they say, oh man, you know what? She's taken. She has a husband. He goes, great, go get her and bring her back. And then he proceeds to sin and to commit adultery with her. And so what we find is we see this man who has been pictured as the very man that God has handpicked to be able to lead his people. We see the very man whom God says. We, we often say, well, David, a man after God's own heart. Well, who said that? God said that. 
He's the one who ultimately gave that title. And so what, we're alert, what we learn about here is if a man like David is to fall, you and I so easily can fall. And when I talk about falling, I don't mean just, just sins that you and I might classify as minor sins. Yes, I understand there's no such thing as a minor sin before God, but you understand the distinction of daily struggles of trying to think the right way and, and speak, uh, uh, speak the right way to people and show, show respect to one another. Th- those daily struggles as opposed to those types of sin that would be classified as this heinous and this despicable. But the truth of the matter is, is you and I are not only in danger of just daily small sins that we commit many times and in many ways, but we are in danger to falling to the same heinous and despicable acts that David was. As a pastor, a fat pastor friend of mine, we were talking about this this last week, and he began to ta- tell me a little bit about the church that he had served in previously, and he began to talk about as a young youth pastor that uh, that that there was a gentleman in the church who had committed adultery and was refusing to repent, was refusing to come back to his wife, was, was doing all of these things. And so he and one of the deacons, lead deacons in the church, went and approached this man to confront him in his sin. And the man didn't take it well. He kept making all kinds of excuses, kept suggesting, hey, it wasn't his fault, he didn't do anything. And, you know, and, and basically, these two men left and really didn't Really, nothing happened. Well, as this young pastor got into the car with his deacon, the deacon just broke down and began to weep. And he began to cry, and he began to weep, and he began to sit there and go, how can he do this? How could this man do this to his wife? How could he do this to his children? And and, and as he began to pour that out, he began to say, and then he wouldn't even repent. He wouldn't even admit that he was wrong. And now he's going to even continue in the sin. How could anybody do this? And the young pastor told me this last week that not more than six months later, the same weeping deacon was caught in the very act of adultery. The truth of the matter is it's just so easy to fall into sin. You don't have to work at it. There's an opportunity, and the first thing you know, you can fall into the sin, you can commit the sin, and the next thing you know, everything is turned upside down. What are we to learn from this? Well, first of all, it at least means that we need to be cautious. We need to remember that past success doesn't promise future success. That, that with David, all the success that he had in the past to be able to overcome sin and, over, and, and to be able to be faithful to God... Didn't, didn't promise him or keep him safe from the future threats that ultimately approached him. We, we can never, listen, we can never drop our guard. We can never become comfortable. We, we can never think that somehow we have arrived. We can never believe that we are beyond sin. We can never come to the point that we're so critical of other people and we begin to say, how in the world could they ever do that? I would never do such a thing because the moment we think and say those very things, the fall has already begun. Sin is something that cannot be played with. I, let me say, one thing that I've learned, and this is very interesting, when, when I was a younger Christian, there were all kinds of sins that I really dealt with and really struggled with that I thank God, praise God, that today I don't really struggle with anymore. I thank God. And that's not because of me. That's because of who? The grace of God. But let me tell you this. There were things that I, I don't know if it's my age. I don't know if it's a change of location. I don't know what it is. It's got to be my wife's fault, I think, but, um, but it's a lot of different reasons. But now I struggle with sins that I never struggled with years ago. 
And now these things that I used to thought had no danger at all, now they become great dangers of shipwrecking me. I was watching, a, as a lot of you do when you start to get on your iPad at night and you begin to watch YouTube and you find yourself in places that you're like, I didn't know these things existed, right? And so I'm watching this thing and there's a man with this big swollen up head and I'm like, whoa, that's startling. What is that? <laughs> and push, push on and start watching and, and he's describing how all, for, for all these years, he's owned, he's owned cobras, which you could shut it off right then and go, this guy's an idiot, right? And so he goes, they were my pets, and I've taken care of them, and this is what's happened. And he goes, for 20 years, I've had these cobras. I've bred them. I've sold them. I sell them for their venom. I do all these other kinds of things. And he goes, but this one day, one got me, and he got me right in the face. In the face, right? <laughs> Take my arm. Not the face. Not the face. And he gets bit in the face, and then as they begin to talk, he just says, and I'll never forget this, he goes, I think over time, I just forgot how dangerous these animals are. It doesn't matter how well you have handled sin in the past, it always has the ability to inflict great pain and destruction on you and I. And you know, it's so hard today. Let me tell you why it's so hard for you today. It's so hard for you today because people use grace to explain everything. In other words, when you sit back and go, hey, I don't want to go see that movie, or I don't want to go do this thing, or I don't want to act this place, or I don't want to go to this place, everybody sits back and says, hey, man, you have freedom in Jesus Christ. You're covered by the blood of Christ. It's all about grace and mercy. And they're absolutely right. It's all about God's grace and God's mercy. But anytime you believe and think that God's grace and God's mercy allows you to continue to do the very thing in which causes son to go to the cross to die for you, you have a misunderstanding of what grace and mercy is all about. And so we have to be cautious. But we have to do more than being cautious. We have to be humble. When we see, listen, and, and you may not like this and you may not understand this, but we need to continue to study our Bibles and submit to what the Bible says. But the Bible teaches us when we see our brother or sister in Christ struggling in sin, falling in sin. Now, there's a difference between struggling, meaning they know they're in it and they're trying to get out of it. All right, And they're sitting there going, bro, I'm struggling with this. That's different than a person who is in sin and they're purposely doing it. And it doesn't show any kind of aspect within their life that they are either see it nor are trying to flee from it. When we see that, you and I have a responsibility to be able to go to each other in love and to be able to say, brother, sister, here's the sin that's in your life. I want to speak truth into your life. Now, let me make sure that we're very clear. We're not talking about sin sniffing, Right? We're not talking about busybodies. We're not talking about the moral police. We're not talking about the dress code police, all right? We're not talking about, hey, listen, I just want to let you know that your skirt is three-fourths of an inch too short. We're, going to have to, we're not looking for any of that type of stuff. What I'm talking about is just when people are just full-on living in sin, they're either blinded to it or, or they're prideful about it, they're not repenting. You and I, as a faith family, have the responsibility to go eat to each other and speak tough words to one another and to call each other to repentance. Now, most people don't want to be a part of that kind of church. I can see that there's probably some folks that wanted to join this morning and all of a sudden they took their little card and they just tucked it back in their Bible said, I don't know if that's the kind of place we want to join. Let's give this a little bit more prayer. But that is what God has ultimately called us to do. But here's why you and I have such difficulty with that. Because we've seen the abuses of it, haven't we? We've seen such abuses where people will sit there and they actually seem to be invigorated by the sin of other people. 
they actually seem to almost get a little bit of excited. They're, they're excited to be able to spread and to be able to tell everybody else, hey, this is what they did. Hey, did you hear what somebody did? And there's no brokenness in them at all. There is rather a what? There's almost like a, a sick, sinful desire to know and to be able to let everybody know what's going on. So what do we do with that? So the problem with us is we respond in the wrong way. The, the key to responding to that kind of sinful activity and that kind of sinful response is not to respond at all, uh, to not respond at all, but to respond in the right way. See, what most people do is they jump back and they go completely the other way, right? And sit there and go, hey man, uh, he who has the first stone, let him, or he who has no sin, let him cast the first stone. So all of a sudden we're like, no man, you know, I don't want to be in the place of judging. The Bible teaches us very carefully how we're supposed to do this. Paul, writing to the Galatians, said this, as his brother, if anyone is caught in any transgressions, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch yourself, lest you too be tempted. Paul says that when someone falls into sin, we are to address it with brokenness for the person, for the person and humility, knowing that the moral failure could have easily been ours had it not been for the mere grace of God. It is so, so easy to fall. Second thing that we learn is that is how far sin will take you. We learn how far sin will take you. David knew that if this ever got out, that it was not going to end well. If anybody finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant while Uriah is on the battlefield, and if they end up bringing it back to him, he's in big trouble. How does he know he's in big trouble? Because he knew better. He knew better because he knew the teaching of the word of God. Exodus chapter 20, Leviticus chapter 18, Deuteronomy chapter 5 expressly commands, expressly uh, prohibited any type of adultery. So he knew it. But he also knew the penalty. He also knew, he also knew the truths in Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 22 that the, the consequence or the, the payment for adultery was death. So when he knows this and he's in fear of getting caught, he does what, what, any, any, any unbel- or what any sinning person does naturally. What do we do? Cover it up. So he comes up with what he believes is going to be this surefire plan. He thinks this has ultimately got to work. And so what he does, he sends a messenger to Joab. Joab sits there and he says, hey, listen, send Uriah over to me off the battlefield. Send him back over to me. Uriah comes to him, and if you read in the text, it's this really weird conversation. He literally says this. He says, how's it going? How you doing? Good, 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 good. How's Joab? Oh, he's great, he's great. He's, he's doing it real well. Well, how the men? How the battle going? It all going well? Yeah, it's really going well. Hey, I want you to go home and I want you to wash your feet. All right, and I want you to go home and wash your feet. That's right. That's exactly what he says. So remember, you say this doesn't make any sense. Even for Uriah, don't you think he's like, dude, you took me off the battlefield to ask me how I'm doing? This is very, very strange. Now, we don't know if he caught on to it or not, but he comes back and he's like, all right, just, just go wash your feet. Now, is this his like, non-so-subtle way of going, bro, your feet stink? No, there's something more culturally uh, astute about this. And, and the, the idea of washing the feet carried with it is an experience of gracious domestic hospitality from his wife. In other words, bro, you haven't had a home-cooked meal in a while. Bro, you just haven't been with your wife for a while in a, in a physical sense. Go home, go do that. You've been, you've been working hard. Go home to, to your wife. 
And so you sit there and you begin to understand he's only got one thing in his mind. Get him in the house with his wife, help him to be able to spend the night because here's what's going to happen. If he does that, then nine months later when this baby, nine months, ten months, it's so confusing to me. Everyone says nine months, but it seems like it's ten months. But anyway, so, 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 so the idea is it gets over there. I just thought of that. That has always been so confusing for me, nine months. And I told my wife, I go, nine months? She goes, well, really, it's ten months. Well, then why do they say nine months? Anyway, I don't understand. It's weird how those things come to your mind, right? So anyway, especially when you're preaching. And so, so, so the, the, the concept there, the concept there is, is, is if, if he could just get, just one night, get him in there, then when this baby comes up, nobody is going to expect anything different. Nobody's going to suspect him. There's only one problem. Uriah wouldn't go along with the plan. He sends him home, and he doesn't go into the house. He stays by the doorway, and he doesn't go in. And this kind of angers, you know, uh, David as well. And he ends up sending him, and he comes, and he says, why did you do this? Verse 11, we pick up. And this is Uriah's response. The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booze, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open. Shall I then go into my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing, he says. I'm not going to do it. Now, there's a part of this that is, is obviously his faithfulness to his brother-in-arms. He doesn't want to go in there because, look, his boys are out in the field, man. I'm not going to go and have it easy while they're out there fighting. I'm not going to do it. But there's more to it than that. It's not just this brotherhood. It's more of his, his, his submission to God, his loyalty to God. If you look at that phrase, servants of God, the, 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 the military, the soldiers during this time believed that they were set apart, sanctified by God to do the work of God to do the very work of God. And so they wanted to keep them ceremonially uh, uh, clean before God, which would mean to refrain from things like alcohol or even refrain from any kind of uh, uh, physical relations, even with a spouse. So they would want to keep themselves apart. And so what's interesting here is we see kind of a flip. What David should have done, he didn't do. What Uriah should have done, he did. In other words, David should have denied his fleshly desires in, uh, in order to uphold the obedience of God. He didn't. But now, the strangeness is, he is trying to get another man to do the same, and he refuses to do it. And he says, you know what? I'm going to be obedient to God, even if it causes me death. Do you see the spiraling down of David? Do, do you see what's happening here? It begins with what? It begins with a look of lust. It ends in what? In adultery. It begins with him and he alone sinning, uh, then him now sinning and trying to be a stumbling block to another person to get them to do the very thing in which he's ultimately doing. Do you see how far sin is taking him? And I wish that we could just stop there, and I think that it would ultimately be enough. You and I would sit back and go, bro, let's have the invitation. Let's get right with Jesus. But it doesn't even let us do it. We, he keeps moving on. He then sits there and he goes, hey, listen, uh, it's okay, no big deal. You stay the night. He gets him drunk. Which again was the very thing he was not supposed to do. He gets him drunk, but he still can't get him to go into his wife. Finally, he sits there and he says, I got to come up with a different plan. All right, just go back. When he goes back, he sends word to Joab. He says, here's what I want you to do. I got to get rid of this mess. I want you to go ahead and put him in the battle. I want you to put him in the fiercest place. And, and right when he's right there, right in the heat of the battle, I want you to draw back the rest of the troops so that he's killed right there. And he does. He goes, he, 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 his life is taken. Then this really weird thing happens. Just follow along with me, if you will. 
I got just a couple minutes here. And notice this in verse 19. Here's it says, and he instructed. This is Joab instructing a messenger when he sends him to David. He says, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting of the king, he's going to send back and say that Joab is, is dead. He goes, then if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, why did you go near the city to fight? Did you not know that they, that they, would, shoot, that they would shoot from the wall and killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? And he says, did not a woman cast an upper, an, uh, a upper millstone on him from the wall so that he would die at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then, then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Such a weird thing going on. What, what do you do with that? Here's what's happening. This is all about the cover-up. This is all about Joab going, man, we did the wrong thing. I need to come up with a cover story. And he basically tells the messenger, hey, man, go back to him go, go back to david and if david sits there and he begins to go oh i'm furious why in the world was he so stupid to go close to the wall and then it refers to something that actually happened back in, in, in judges remember in judges when i preached on that passage about the millstone falling on the on the guy's head remember that right remember and so it, i did and so fell on fell, fell on his head killed him and and he's saying you know what's probably going to happen is david is just going to remind you didn't you learn from abimelech Remember when the lady threw the millstone down his head? How could you be so stupid? And he goes, he's probably going to go on all that. He goes, just, it's going to be okay. Just tell him, though, unfortunately, this other man died. Let me just tell you, let me tell you something. You know that you are off and you are in sin when you have to work at covering up your sin. When you have to work at it, I'm not talking about just, hey, I stumbled here, I stumbled there. But you're so far in it, now you have to make a story about your sin to cover your sin in order to be able to commit more sin. It's a horrible place for us to be able to be. And so he's going further than he would ever ultimately want to go. You know, it's interesting to me because, because ultimately what happens is he goes from lust to adultery to stumbling block to premeditated murder. And this man is interesting because now look how far he goes. The servant of God comes to him, tells him what happens. Now, look, look what happens at the end of verse 25. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the word devours now one and now another. He goes, the sword. And he goes, Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. The Bible tells us that you know that we are in big trouble when we call evil good and good evil. He's to that point. He's to the point to where he actually now is believing and trying to convince other people that he sinned and he needed to sin because it was necessary for him to be able to do so. That's when you know and when I know that we are in big, big trouble and sin. We've gone farther than we would ever imagine that we should go. Rabbi Zacharias says this. You're probably familiar with it. He says, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. I begin to try to think because I know as a pastor and I learned in my bachelor's and master's and doctorate that I really don't know what I'm doing even after all that education with preaching and I still struggle with preaching but I do know enough that I'm supposed to give an illustration at this point after explanation comes illustration that's right all right just want to know our discipleship pastors lead me in the right way and so so he's supposed to give an illustration and I racked my brain all week and started asking everybody can you give me an illustration of this can you show me this somewhere and here's where I came down to I've got illustrations 
to show you this very truth, that sin will take you further than what you want to go, it will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than what you want to spend, than you want to pay. But I can't share any of them with you. It would be so irresponsible for me to even convey to you what folks that I have known and have even shepherded have done and how far they've gone into sin, I couldn't say it in a mixed company that we have. That's how far sin will ultimately take you, is that you can't even discuss it in a sermon on Sunday morning. It's so far. The only way that I can really kind of sum it up is to try to use a biblical illustration. Obviously, David is the biblical illustration, but the only other person that I can think of that might be a graphic picture would be, would be Samson. There was a man who had it all, who was called from a, as a young child, called out by God, sanctified by God. He was called to be able to be a deliverer, a judge of Israel, to be able to deliver the people. He was, a smart, he was the strongest man on earth. The man had a full head of hair. He had it all. Right? And where does he end up other than bald? Because of his sin, because of his pursuit of sin, where does he end? At the end of the story, we find him powerless, positionless, with his eyes gouged out, being the, the base of all the jokes of his enemy, and he is laboring at a millstone, pushing it like a wild animal. How far sin takes us. Number three, we learn how the responsibility of sin rests solely on the sinner. One of the things that sticks out to me, you probably do the same as you're reading the story. You might do this in Bible study. What was Bathsheba thinking? What was Joab thinking? You begin to sit there and go, well, what about all of them? Aren't they kind of involved here? I mean, what about Bathsheba? I mean, she's out, okay, she's <clears throat> trying to be sanctified, irony, she's up on, on her roof, which is not unusual, it was, would have been cooler up there, she's, she's trying to bathe, she's doing these types of things, and she's thinking, oh, she might have done that on purpose, did she do it on purpose? We don't, we don't know. Shouldn't she have at least said, bro, I'm married, hit the road, Jack, don't come around here no more, no more, you know, she, she should have said that, we, we could have said, we could have said it, but you know what, the, the Bible doesn't let us know what she's thinking. Doesn't, doesn't allow us to go there. What about Uriah? I, I got to think that he knew something was going on. And maybe he knew that something was going on, but if he brought it up, maybe his life would be killed, or his life would be, his life would be killed, his, his life would be taken. And so maybe he's sitting back, and maybe he's just sitting there and going, man, I'm just going to rub this one in on him. I'm not going to go in no matter what he says, and I'm just going to let him stew over this, instead of actually going to him. What about Joab? This is his nephew. Shouldn't his nephew be able to sit there and go, bro, wait a minute, I'll do anything you ask me, uh, I'll do anything you ask me to do for love, but I won't do that. Sorry, there's a sign of that. But I won't do that. It's a good thing I don't plan these things because... But the, but the idea is, why is it? But here's the thing. Did you notice that the Bible even barely tells us about what they say? It doesn't give us any insight of what they're feeling. It doesn't give any insight to, 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 to why they do what they do. Here's why. Because the author is trying to let us understand that David's sin is David's sin. It's not anybody else's. It's literally the bottom line of the text. 
Look at the very last verse. The bottom line is this. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. We live in a culture and we live in a time, don't we, that, that it's everybody else's fault of why I did what I did. I'm a victim. I did this because they did that. Had they not done this, I wouldn't have done that. I, I just do all these things. And listen, I, I want to make sure that you understand there are victims in this world. There are people that are treated in the wrong way. There's no doubt about it. We probably have a room full of them. There are things that go wrong, things that don't go our way. They're hard, and they certainly do impact us and press us and try to form us into a mold. There's no doubt about it. But our sin is ours, not somebody else's. Not my mom, not my dad, not my husband, not my wife, not my son, not my mom, not my dad, not whoever. It's mine. And when you get to the very end of this, here's the thing is, I mean, and I've been asking people all the week. I, I've been asking the staff, where's the hope in this? What, do we just, just end here? I, is this it? Well, apparently that's where the author leaves off. But I think the hope is in this. Coming and taking responsibility for our own sin is the first step in forgiveness and reconciliation. There's this beautiful verse in the New Testament that says this, that God extends grace to the humble, but it rejects the proud, which is wonderful because you may be in this sin. Here, here's where I think we are. Nick, I'm going to ask you to come. Here's where I think we are this morning. It's going to be found out after this sermon that myself or one of the staff or one of you, sometime later, had heard this very message and not responded and taken ownership of the sin that we're in. I don't want that to happen. I don't want it to happen to me. I don't want it to happen to you. I love you. But what we have to come is right now, we have to understand that there are people working harder to cover their sin than there are people trying to run from it. And we have to come back and we have to admit it. And we have to come back and we have to say, I'm in sin right now. Nobody else knows, but guess what? And that's one of the points of the whole text. You get through the whole text, you don't hear any mention of God hardly. Until when? Until the very end. Which means is that you and I are fooled oftentimes into thinking that God either doesn't care or God doesn't know because he's not intervening, he's not stopping, he's not doing anything. But God knows. But God knows. He may not have acted or reacted because he's gracious and he gives us time and he's patient for us to be able to repent. And that's what he's giving us the time to be able to do now. I want you to understand something. I am not trying to call you to be better people. I'm trying to call you to show you your need for Jesus Christ. I'm not calling you to sit there and go, yeah, I've done all these bad things. I'm going to do better tomorrow. I'm trying to show you if David couldn't live the life that God had called him to, you can't live the life that, you, that God has called you to apart from the person of Jesus Christ. See, David was tempted in many ways and sinned little. There was one that came that would be tempted in all ways and sinned not. Jesus Christ was literally tempted in every way that you and I were tempted in, and he never, ever failed. So that when he died on the cross, he wouldn't die for his own sin, but he would die for your sin. And my sin, your sin and my sin would be placed on him. And when the wrath of God poured down on him, 
it would be satisfied fully and completely. The way that we know that is because of the resurrection. He raises them, he raises them from the dead, which lets us know, paid in full, paid in full. So the idea here is for us to do what? Is to repent, is to turn. That secret sin, no one knows, God knows. You're struggling so hard, you don't want to be in that anymore. To come out of it, and to call on the graciousness of God. But you must first humble yourself and say, God, it's not anybody else's fault. It's my fault. I've sinned against you and against you alone. And God says, that's the place of my forgiveness. That's the place of my restoration. Let's that be the place for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank